Welcome to today's reading of the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger for Thursday, February the 29th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here is our first story. It's entitled, Deer Unveils Massive New Tractor. 9RX, the largest, highest horsepower tractor the company has ever made. It's written by Pat Kinney for the Globe Gazette, and the dateline is Waterloo. The largest and highest horsepower tractor John Deere has ever made is expected to roll off the assembly lines in Waterloo in mid-2024. Company officials announced today its brand new 9RX tractor, a flexible swivel joint articulated tractor with four huge treads or tracks will be manufactured in Waterloo. The tractor can be fitted with 830, 770, or 710 horsepower engines, depending on customer needs. It'll be the most productive, highest horsepower, smartest tractor that we've ever produced, said Brett Showalter, large tractor and tillage manager at Deer in Waterloo. And we can carry that flag across the industry as well. There's no other tractor out there that will be even close to the productivity that this tractor will be able to offer. The announcement was made today at the 2024 Commodity Classic Trade Show in Houston and provided to the Courier. It's an amazing tractor, said Becky Gwynn, vice president of factory manager uh, of Deere's Waterloo operations. While local officials declined to say whether the new tractor line would create any additional jobs going forward, they noted preparations have been in the works for some time. Some 1,200 positions of the 5,500 employee Waterloo operations have been filled in a series of hiring fairs over the past three or to four years. Gwynn noted Deere has invested some $500 million in its Waterloo operations over the same period. A major portion of the East Donald Street Tractor Cab Assembly Operations Plant, known to many longtime residents as the Tractor Works or the Northeast Site, is currently under renovation. The new tractors, in a conventional Midwestern farm setting, would primarily be used for tillage, an increasingly time-sensitive operation that has to be done at opportune windows in between weather swings. Your windows are unpredictable and there isn't a lot of time to do tillage, Showalter said, so being able to be productive in the spring and in the fall are what we're aiming to do with this machine. The horsepower is unprecedented, Gwyn and Showalter said. There are tractors in the low 700s today in horsepower, Showalter said. This is far and away industry-leading from a horsepower and productivity standpoint. This is a ground-up, brand-new redesigned machine that the top model will be at 830 horsepower. There are two models below, 770 and 710 as well, he said. An existing tracks model with two tracks on either side of the machine is very popular, Showalter said. These new articulated models with four tracks are an extension of that. The track system allows me to get the power to the ground with more efficiency and provides greater traction to be able to pull implements in lots of different conditions, he said. The tractor can power through tough traction areas, displacing the weight of the machine and minimizing compaction of the soil that would make the earth harder to till. The new tractor line was conceived and is being built entirely in Waterloo, Cedar Falls at the various plants making up Deere's massive manufacturing complex. It includes a new 18-liter engine manufactured at the Deere Engine Works on West Ridgeway Avenue. 
It's really that capability all the way from our engine works to foundry to drivetrain that allows us to be able to do that, Gwynn said. It was designed at the Deer Product Engineering Center in Cedar Falls. Planning began in 2017. We started with a white sheet of paper and said, how would we ideally design this? We have a ton of legacy and learning that we build on, Showalter said. That body of knowledge allowed them to identify areas to improve on from previous models. The track system is all new, but with learning from the past, Showalter said. The transmission was designed at the Product Engineering Center, manufactured here at the drivetrain assembly. It builds on some of the transmissions in our other products, but obviously it's scaled up to be able to accommodate the power we're putting through this machine. One of the things that's different about this program is how much virtual engineering we did at the PEC, Gwyn said, learning how to design and manufacture the products virtually, more efficiently, and in less time than physically building actual test models. The tools for analytics in a virtual world have evolved significantly. We were able to design this all virtually, Gwyn said, probably years ahead of when we would have traditionally done that. When you talk about artificial intelligence or virtual tools or analytics, we really pushed the envelope so much further on this program than we ever have in the past, Gwyn said. That gives us some really good confidence on our ability to have the quality controls and manufacturing capability, the overall durability and performance that our customers expect. The new product line is being introduced in addition to Deere's Waterloo-made and still relatively new 8R series tractors rolled out in the middle of the coronavirus pandemic in 2020 and the continued rollout of the remotely guided driverless autonomous tractor announced in 2022. It's a major milestone for the company, which began tractor production in Waterloo 106 years ago with its purchase of the Waterloo Gasoline Engine Company in 1918. Local Deer officials said they plan to mark the milestone with some in-house celebrations with staff. Production is anticipated to begin in late spring or early summer. The other page on the excuse me the other article on the front page of the Globe Gazette today is entitled AG won't file charges in Weedmore postage case. Auditor reimbursed county for using courthouse meter for campaign mailing. It's written by Robin McClelland. The Iowa Attorney General's office will not file criminal charges against Democratic Cerro Gordo County Atter- Auditor Adam Weedmore in a case regarding his personal use of a county postage meter. In a letter from the Iowa Department of Justice, attained by the Globe Gazette, addressed to Cerro Gordo County Attorney Carlisle Dalen, Special Assistant Attorney General Scott D. Brown admonished Weedmore for his actions. The declination of criminal charges does not equate to condoning the behavior of Weedmore. Weedmore exercised poor judgment in utilizing a county-owned mail machine intended for official use for other purposes, Brown wrote. Although he ultimately paid for the postage, the ink, and the electricity for use of the machine, his actions caused the public that he serves to justifiably mistrust his actions. However, not all exercises of bad judgment result in criminal charges. This is one of those occasions. Brown said the Cerro Gordo County Sheriff's investigation revealed that Weedmore entered the courthouse with his family January the 27th with a number of boxes that were later determined to have contained 1,000 campaign mailings. On February 2nd, Weedmore informed his finance director that he intended to reimburse the county for the cost of the postage. 
The attorney general said his intentions are supported by the fact that he had purchased a replacement ink cartridge for the postage meter that same day. On February the 5th, Weedmore provided his finance director with a check drawn from his election account in the amount of $650. The cost of the postage from the meter was $640, and Weedmore included an additional $10 to cover the cost of electricity and wear and tear. According to the letter from Brown, there are two potentially applicable charges in this instance, fourth-degree theft and non-felonious misconduct in office, neither of which will be pursued. The Iowa Attorney General's office cites Weedmore's timely reimbursement to the county as a contributing factor in declining to file charges. Cerro Gordo County Supervisor Casey Callanan, a Republican who brought the allegations to the board's attentions Monday, said in an email, per the two-to-one vote yesterday, it is my hope that we will enter into an agreement with the state auditor's office to ensure there are no other improprieties taking place by Adam Weedmore at the expense of Cerro Gordo taxpayers. To my knowledge, there is no other agencies involved at this time. Weedmore's infractions have been referred to an ethics commission that oversees county auditors. Weedmore could not be reached for comment. Our next article, also written by Robin McClelland, is entitled Charles City Awarded $30,000 Grant for Healthy Living. Charles City was selected as one of 14 communities across Iowa to receive 5210 Healthy Choices Count funding through the Iowa Department of Health and Human Services, according to a press release. The program is a nationally recognized evidence-based framework to promote the daily recommendations of five servings of fruits and vegetables, two hours or less of recreational screen time, one hour or more of physical activity, and zero sugary drinks. The goal of 5210 Healthy Choices Count is to work with parents, teachers, child care providers, health care providers, and business leaders to increase physical activity and healthy eating through policy and environmental change. By working with communities to healthy strategies, HHS aims to promote health equity, increasing opportunities for everyone to live the healthiest life possible by addressing social, economic, and environmental barriers that impact health Locally, HHH worked with steering committee consisting of representatives from the City of Charles City, the School District, Floyd County Department of Public Health, Floyd County Medical Center, TLC Daycare, and ISU Extension. The steering committee looked at local needs to decide on projects for first-year funding. The committee decided to focus on accessibility improvements at local schools. First-year projects include a new ADA-accessible swing at Lincoln Elementary School and an ADA-accessible swing and outdoor sensory playground equipment to be installed at the Charles City Middle School. First-year funding will also include a new water fountain and water bottle filling station at the gym of the North Grand Building for, the, for children at the TLC daycare and everyday users of the facility. After conducting a community and school assessment with parents, school staff, and community stakeholders, our steering committee identified that our ADA equipment was lacking at Lincoln Elementary and the middle school campuses, said Bethany Bjorkland, school nurse with Charles City Community School District, in a statement. 
Our playgrounds are open to the public, and the equipment we selected is for all children of all ages and ensures our students with disabilities have the opportunity to enjoy being outside with their classmates. Past projects around Iowa include outdoor workout equipment installed at a local park in Sargent Bluff, expanded recreation offerings, snowshoes, ice skates, and skate trainers for community members to rent in Spencer, and an installation of ADA-compliant water stations around Ottumwa. Funding for 5210 Healthy Choices Count is provided by Iowa Health and Human Services Appropriations for Childhood Obesity Prevention. For more information on 5210 Healthy Choices Count, visit https colon slash slash hhs dot iowa dot gov slash 5210 or https colon slash slash www.iowahealthiest.state.com slash 5210 hyphen resources. Our next article is entitled Arizona Man Sentenced in Charles City Drug Stop. It's written by Jeff Reinitz. The dateline is Charles City. An Arizona man has been sentenced to prison in connection with more than a kilogram of meth found in his car during a traffic stop in Floyd County in 2022. John Trinidad Qualls, age 43, of Tucson, was sentenced to 10 years and one month behind bars on a charge of possession of meth with intent to deliver on Monday in U.S. District Court in Cedar Rapids. Following prison, Qualls will be on a supervised release for five years. According to court records, a Floyd County Sheriff's deputy stopped Qualls's Chevrolet Cruze on U.S. Highway 18 for going 88 miles per hour in a 65-mile-per-hour zone around 3 a.m. on December 31, 2022. When he handed the deputies a pouch containing his driver's license, insurance, and registration, the deputy noticed marijuana residue on the pouch and the documents smelled of marijuana. A further search turned up two bags totaling 1,200 grams, about two and a half pounds, of meth in the vehicle records state. Qualls told police he was traveling from Michigan to Clear Lake when he was pulled over. Next up, Iowans could soon buy Don't Tread on Me plates. Yellow Gadsden flag license tags may fund gun training by NRA. This is written by Caleb McCullough of the Globe Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Iowans could soon purchase a license plate that features the yellow Don't Tread on Me Gadsden flag with the fees collected going to fund training and education by National Rifle Association affiliated groups. The flag, which features a coiled rattlesnake and the slogan, Don't Tread on Me, has become a symbol of individual liberty favored by libertarians and conservatives. It has its origins in the American Revolutionary War and was designed by Christopher Gadsden, a South Carolina delegate to the Continental Congress. House File 2424, which would make the plates an option for drivers in Iowa, was passed out of the Ways and Means Committee by majority Republicans on Wednesday, making it eligible for a vote in the full House. The specialized plates would cost $50 to register and require a $50 annual fee. The money collected by the plate registration would be directed to the Department of Public Safety, which would distribute grants for education and training on the right to keep and bear arms under the constitutions of the U.S. and Iowa. 
The bill would direct the department to give first consideration for those grants to any official state association of the National Rife Association or similar nonprofit organizations. The Iowa Firearms Coalition, an influential gun rights lobbying group, is the official Iowa State Association of the NRA. The coalition is the only group registered in favor of the bill. We do a lot of with different plates, right? We direct funds to different commodity groups or other organizations, said Representative Phil Thompson, a Republican from Boone and chair of the House Public Safety Committee. It was kind of a brainchild of senators that wanted to do the same thing with Second Amendment advocacy. Iowans have the option to pay for plates associated with the state's three public universities, natural resources, emergency medical services, firefighters, and motorcycle riders, among many others. The fees for those plates are also directed to specific state funds to benefit those groups. The bill originally called for a $35 registration fee and a $10 annual fee, but Republicans amended the bill in the Ways and Means Committee meeting on Wednesday to increase those fees to $50 each. Based on estimates from the Legislative Services Agency adjusted for the new cost, the bill would bring in more than $157,000 in fees during the first year. The agency expected around 3,150 plates would be issued. Democrats opposed the bill in committee and offered an amendment to redirect the funding to mental health support and school shooting counseling by the state's area education agencies, which was voted down by Republicans. We've heard for years and years and years the question is on mental health, said Representative David Jacoby, a Democrat from Coralville. Well, after years and years and years of that question, here's an answer, that we divert those funds toward mental health or our children in the state of Iowa. Jacoby also proposed an amendment to reduce the fees for the plates to what was originally proposed in the bill, which was voted down. He said he was not opposed to offering the flag as an option for Iowa drivers, but he did not want to see the money collected going to the NRA-affiliated groups. Thompson said he supports directing the money to gun rights organizations because they are the groups that offer education around the Second Amendment and right to bear arms. The bill was also amended to allow vehicle owners to place frames around a license plate that obscure the name of the plate's county as long as they do not obscure the other numbers and letters of the plate. Twelve other states, including Texas, Florida, and Virginia, offer Gadsden flag license plates. Senate lawmakers advanced a similar bill last year, but it did not include the provision to direct funds to gun rights groups. The bill did not reach a floor vote. Now we come to an article entitled, Educators Favor House Path to Boosting Teacher Staff Pay. It's written by Aaron Murphy of the Globe Gazette Des Moines Bureau. Multiple proposals to increase the pay of Iowa's teachers and educational support staff are moving through the Iowa Capitol, but public education advocates are particularly receptive to one version. A proposal from majority Republicans in the Iowa House would increase the starting salary for all Iowa teachers to over all Iowa teachers over two years to $50,000, set a $15 minimum wage for educational support staff like teachers' aides, and devote $22 million in additional funding to increase salaries for veteran teachers. That bill advanced Monday through the House's State Budget Committee at the Iowa Capitol as House legislators considered it from a financial perspective. 
The bill, House File 2611, previously received unanimous approval from the House Education Committee as a policy. The House Republican plan differs from similar proposals presented by Governor Kim Reynolds and majority Republicans in the Iowa Senate, particularly with its added funding for veteran teacher salaries and support staff minimum wage. Melissa Peterson with the Iowa Education Association, the statewide union that represents Iowa teachers and other educational professionals, thanked Reynolds for starting the conversation but praised House Republicans' approach. We really appreciate the House's commitment to addressing what is an incredible staff shortage issue in our public schools, Peterson said Monday during a legislative hearing on the proposal. We appreciated the governor's suggestion and to invest in a new $96 million to address this issue, but we really liked that the House leadership is interested in addressing not just teacher compensation, but educational professional compensation. That's really important. The current minimum beginning teacher salary in Iowa is $33,500. The House bill would increase that to $47,500 for the 2024-2025 school year, then $50,000 for the 2025-2026 school year and beyond. Groups representing Iowa's school boards and school administrators also expressed support for the House bill. One of our members' top priorities is addressing the teacher shortage, and we think being able to pay competitive wages is a great way to address recruitment and retention issues, as well as the investment in the support personnel like paraeducators, Michelle Johnson with the Iowa Association of School Boards said during Monday's hearing. So overall, we think it's a great investment. Dave Doughton, with the School Administrators of Iowa, said the group supports the House bill for the same reasons and also expressed gratitude for the House approach of making the proposed increases a bill by itself, separating it from legislation that would dramatically alter the operation and funding of the state's nine area education agencies. Reynolds put the teacher pay provisions in the same bill as her AEA proposal, which has sharply divided Iowans, education advocacy groups, and state lawmakers. As has been mentioned, we have a significant teacher shortage in Iowa, as well as support staff shortage, and we need to find ways to help address that. We think this does it, Doughton said. All three members of the legislative subcommittee panel, two Republicans and one Democrat, moved to advance the House proposal out of subcommittee and shortly afterward it was approved unanimously by the full House State Budget Committee. I've been hearing more and more about support staff as well, almost as much as teacher salaries, so I think this is really important bill that addresses that, said Representative Carter Nordman, a Republican from Panora who managed the bill through both legislative steps Monday. It's important that we attract teachers into the profession, but also retain teachers. And I think this addresses that. I think this is a good step forward. A spokesman for majority Iowa Senate Republicans said that caucus is weighing how all pieces of the K-12 public education funding pie for fiscal 2025, which begins July 1, being considered this session fit into overall spending, including general state education funding, teacher and staff salaries, and AEA funding. Those spending levels ultimately will be negotiated by Senate and House Republican leaders. Now let's turn to today's opinion page, and I'll read the another view from the Wall Street Journal entitled, Biden's Boast, The High Court Didn't Stop Me. 
president ignores the law in forgiving more student debt, $138 billion and counting. American presidents may not like Supreme Court decisions, but most since Andrew Jackson haven't bragged about defying its rulings, not even Donald Trump. Then there's President Joe Biden, who, while canceling more student debt recently, boasted about ignoring the Supreme Court's landmark 2023 ruling that his previous loan forgiveness plan was illegal. Biden said his original plan to provide millions of working families with debt relief for their college student debt was derailed by MAGA Republicans and special interests who challenged the plan in court. The Supreme Court blocked it, Biden added, but that didn't stop me. He apparently thinks defying the law is a virtue. Biden in recent days wrote off an additional $1.2 billion in student loan debt, bringing the total amount he has canceled to some $138 billion. That's not as much as the $400 billion debt cancellation a 6-3 to Supreme Court majority struck down last summer, but it's still a handout to 3.9 million borrowers. He's not really canceling anything because he's transferring the debt from the borrowers it benefited to the taxpayers who will finance it with higher taxes or interest payments on the rising national debt. Under his saving on a valuable education plan, President Unstoppable is offering loan forgiveness through income-driven repayment plans. Borrowers used to be expected to pay 10% of the portion of their discretionary income that exceeds 150% of the federal poverty level, currently $22,590, for 20 years after which their loans are forgiven. The Biden plan reduces the payment to 5% of their discretionary income above 225% of the poverty level. The Education Department says borrowers will also be eligible for loan forgiveness plans if they are enrolled in the plan, have been making payments for 10 years, and had total original debt of less than $12,000. Those with larger loan amounts will also be eligible for forgiveness on a sliding scale. Missouri had standing to challenge the first Biden loan forgiveness plan because its loan servicer would be adversely affected if borrowers stopped paying their loans. In overturning that Biden diktat, the court said Biden had acted without proper congressional authority and thus violated the Constitution's separation of powers. Biden is boasting about his debt forgiveness because he is desperate to get young voters to support him again in November. His debt forgiveness scheme is a flagrant vote-buying ploy. The forgiveness skews to upper-income borrowers who have attended college at the expense of those who don't. It is grossly unfair. It also punishes parents and students who have saved to pay for college without loans or who sacrificed consumption after college to repay them. But worst of all is Biden's blatant rejection of the law. Is it any wonder GOP voters don't take Democratic alarms about losing democracy seriously? Biden doesn't take his own warnings seriously. We'll turn to the sports page. Our top story about high school girls basketball, Forest City Falls at State. ELC's Stokes spoils Indians' first appearance. It's written by Jim Nelson. Forest City knew it had to find number 23 every time down the court. Knowing that and accomplishing that feat was harder than just saying or thinking it. Estherville Lincoln Central's Haley Stokes hit a three-pointer the first time she shot the ball just seconds into Monday's Class 3A state quarterfinal game at Wells Fargo Arena. 
Stokes didn't stop making shots for a long time. The Minnesota, mate, Minnesota State Mankato commit, commit pumped home 44 points as the Midgets spoiled the Indians' state tournament debut with a 61-47 victory. You try to keep the ball out of her hands, but she is so skilled she just controls the game in so many ways, Forest City head coach Matt Erpelding said. She's tough to guard on any night, but she was feeling it tonight and we just couldn't find a way to stop her. Stokes made 15 of 24 shots from the field and 10 of 12 free throws while also recording 7 steals and 5 rebounds. Only two other ELC players scored in the game. She's an unbelievable player, senior Emma Anderson said. It is hard to stop her, especially when she's feeling it. The Midgets, who won the 3A title in 2022 before being upset in the first round last February as the top seed, scored the first four points of the game, including Stokes' three-pointer. Forest City responded as Hayden Brown and Bethany Warren scored back-to-back with Warren's inside bucket, making it 4-all with 6.04 left in the first quarter. But ELC went on 11-2 run and led 21-15 after one quarter. It was 34-21 at the half. In addition to Stokes, Forest City's struggled with turnovers, committing 15 of them in the first half and 23 for the game. The Midgets recorded 18 steals in the game. ELC continually built its lead and led by as much as 19 in the second half, but the Indians battled all the way to the final buzzer, trimming their deficit to 11 with a couple of minutes left in the game before the final deficit. Colette Loge led Forest City with 12 and Anderson had 11. Brown had 7 points and 8 rebounds and Lexi Isabrand added 7. Regardless of the final outcome, the Indians felt they accomplished a ton during their 21-win-4 loss season. Forest City graduates Anderson, Jaden, Jerome, and Zoe Holmes, but returns for starters. Erpelding mimicked his players' comments. First time down here for Forest City. Proud of my kids. We will be back, he finished. In boys' high school basketball, Clear Lake ousted by Ballard in sub-state final. This is written by Nate Thomas. First 10 minutes of Monday night's Class 3A2 sub-state final was a thing of beauty for Clear Lake with a combination of ball movement, shooting, aggressiveness at the rim, and defense. But for as quick as the good came, it all crumbled down just as fast against Ballard. The Bombers took advantage of the Lions' mistakes to snatch a state tournament bid with a 62-51 win in a chippy affair in Clarion. Clear Lake's season finishes at 22 wins and 2 losses. It was a mix of misfortune, mistakes, and superb play from Ballard that derailed a short-handed and scrappy Lions' hopes of reaching next week's state tournament. Ballard's Jude Gibson was the spark on both the offensive and defensive ends for the Bombers. The sophomore guard finished with a game-high 21 points, 9 steals, and 7 rebounds. In the second quarter, he scored 9 points in Ballard's 14-0 run that broke the game open. The 26-19 deficit at halftime for Clear Lake became insurmountable in the second half, and Gibson was one of the big reasons for that. Even coming out of the halftime break, Clear Lake still hung around. The Lions scored six straight in the first two minutes to cut the lead to two, but never pulled closer the rest of the game. Ballard's lead dwindled to five multiple times, but the turnover bug and cold shooting came back to bite Clear Lake. The game was in the balance until the fourth quarter when Ballard went on a 14-1 to to seal, 14-1 run to seal the win. 
Clear Lake, with its success over the past decade, has shown the pedigree to bounce back from sub-state final losses, and Jeremy Ainley thinks no different with this group. Meyer and Schmidt return next season with underclassmen like Max Larson, Gage Larson, Trevor Theobald, and Jackson McIntyre, who impressed all over the last few weeks. We will be fine. We will get back to what we do, Ainley said. At the end of the day, it comes down to execution. This is the hardest game on the schedule. It comes down to execution, and we didn't execute tonight. That's going to do it for the Globe Gazette today. This is a reminder that you are listening to the Mason City Globe Gazette and the Fort Dodge Messenger on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now let's turn to the Fort Dodge Messenger. Our top story is entitled Exploring Opportunities, Iowa Central Helps Students Learn About Careers. It's written by John McBride. Getting high school students exposed to different career areas has been a goal of Iowa Central Career Discovery Days held each year on campus in Fort Dodge. The college has hosted Career Discovery Days for more than 10 years and they've grown each year. This year, nine career discovery days were scheduled that included 11 different career clusters. The first was held on October the 19th and focused on business and information technology. The final two will be held on March 19th and April 23rd. In between, career discovery days have focused on science, math, and STEM, healthcare, culinary, music, and theater, and several other areas. Students learn about different classes and degree programs available at Iowa Central and learn about long-term employment in the areas featured each visit day. It's important to get students exposed to career opportunities early so they can figure out what they do and do not like for their future, said Danelle Balk a college and career transition counselor at Iowa Central. Starting earlier, students can figure out their strengths, likes, dislikes, values, etc. to lead them to figuring out their future plans earlier. This could lead them into looking for a job shadow internship experience or even taking a college course. Iowa Central used to host just one expansive career day for students to attend, but began moving toward more targeted days based on career clusters. During the COVID pandemic, they took a break and did events based on school requests, according to Balk. This school year, career discovery days on campus returned. Students usually attend three or four sessions in different buildings at Iowa Central based on their career clusters. Most sessions are led by Iowa Central staff, and a lot of them include hands-on activities. Balk said Iowa Central serves 19 area schools, and all are invited to bring students. So far this year, 15 area schools have participated. One of the barriers, she said, is time and distance from the Iowa Central campus. The days usually begin around 9 a.m. with one big session for all the students. They are then broken off into smaller groups and attend sessions based on their career clusters for the day. Most days end with lunch at the Triton Cafe. Students in grades 9 through 12 are welcome to attend the Career Discovery Days, Balk said. She said sophomores and juniors probably benefit the most because students in those grades start to think more about future planning and what they want to do after graduation. Students are welcome to attend as many days as they want, said Balk. Each day is different with hands-on activities from our program coordinators and speakers from the community. I recommend students come to the career areas that interest them.
Balk said healthcare days are one of the more popular sessions. STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, is also another popular day. Overall, the feedback from students has been positive, Balk said. They enjoy the hands-on activities of lear- and learning more about the different potential careers. We hope that students take away knowledge and a better understanding of careers within a field, or they even figure out what they want to do in the future. We want them to be excited about learning even more. Balk said Iowa Central typically works over the summer to set the schedule for upcoming school year. She said the college tries to avoid no no school days for high schools and any longer breaks the schools may have. She also said Iowa Central staff work closely with counselors from each area school to help with information, registration, and anything else the high schools need. Balk said right now no big changes are on the horizon for career discovery days, but the college will evaluate the experience at the end of the year and determine what to do next. She said, though, career discovery days will definitely continue on campus. Students who would like to register for any of the remaining career discovery days can contact their high school counselor. Next is an article entitled, Soul is Webster City Firefighter of the Year. It's written by Jane Curtis. Passion and Grit. Captain Andy Sowell, S-O-W-L-E, Webster City Fire Department's Firefighter of the Year, is a monument to those attributes to hear his boss, Chief Chuck Stansfield, tell it. Sowell was named Firefighter of the Year Saturday at Webster City Fire Department's annual dinner in the Van Deist Building on Hamilton County Fairgrounds. Before he was handed the award, Sowell had to endure a virtual shower of compliments. Our Firefighter of the Year has passion, Stansfield said. When you buy into what this job has you do, it is about impossible not to become passionate about it. You literally have your friends and communities' lives at stake. Sowell, a full-time Webster City Fire member since 2008, was a long-time volunteer before then. He is all in for Webster City, Stansfield told his audience. How do I know this? Our Firefighter of the Year has been a fan of our sports teams for years. Two years ago, he became one of the coaches of our high school varsity football team. Last year, he took a greater role there in defense and continues to take on more responsibility as one of the most respected and admired football coaches on the Lynx field. He has volunteered so many hours to the program prior to getting hired, the chief said, but when he is not on the field helping to make our Lynx football program be the best it can be, you will see him working hard in two of the other priorities in his life. Priority one is is his family. When you see him with his son, three girls, and wife, his priority is obvious. He is a great dad and husband to his family. Stansfield continued, when he is not taking care of them or coaching our high school athletes, he is working to make our community safer at the fire station. This firefighter is gritty, aggressive, and hardworking. That is how he approaches his leadership in the fire service and fires that he works. Sowell, his boss said, is an all-around full-timer, staging drills, tracking attendance and call sheets, and training new members. He runs the annual golf tournament that raises money for equipment. On scene, he might be in command running a fire attack team or safety, but it's also the the behind-the-scenes things he does that benefits our department, too. There is a lot of administration that goes into running a full-time fire department, and he helps with a lot of this. Our firefighter of the year is a student of the craft. Just the other day, I heard him say, well, I better stay after and learn how to put that piece of equipment back together, always wanting to learn more. 
Stansfield went on. Another great attribute our firefighter of the year is grit. This job is really not for everyone. The saying it takes hard men and women to do hard things is very true in this profession. Our firefighter of the year embodies strong, <clears throat> aggressive qualities. I know when he says it's not going well, I need to change directions because he does not scare easily. I have watched him work at several fires and scenes over the years, and he just has the grit and determination to succeed. He will not fail. For those and so many other reasons, I am excited to announce our 2023 Firefighter of the Year, Captain Andy Soul. Our final story from the front page of the uh, Fort Dodge Messenger today is entitled, Becker Lived for Family, Gardening, and Being Outdoors. Well-known Fort Dodge business owner passes away at 96 years old. It's written by Chris Johnson. Bill Becker had one last piece of advice to pass along before he passed away at 96 years old. With his grandchildren from Chicago visiting in the hospital recently, Becker called them all over to his bedside. He told them he had a Sunday school lesson to share. It is important in life to be kind, Becker said to the grandkids. Be kind to everyone and be good. But if a bully gets after you, make sure there are two of you. One takes them high and one takes them low. That's one of the last memories his son Jeff will take with him. His father died during the early morning hours on Wednesday. Jeff recalls plenty of memories and admiration for his dad. The two worked side by side at Becker Florist in Fort Dodge for as long as Jeff could remember. He was an incredible guy, Jeff said. Every doctor, nurse, and healthcare worker in Des Moines and at Unity Point, where Bell recently spent time, commented on his politeness. He would shake their hands and say, thank you. They said they wished every patient was like him. While at the hospital talking with the nurses, <clears throat> Bill was quick to point out how healthy he had been during his nearly 100 years on earth. When he was at Unity Point, he saw a defibrillator machine with little paddles, Jeff said. He said, is that for my heart? He told them it's been pumping for 96 years without stopping. Bill Becker was a third-generation owner and operator of Becker Florist with his brother, Ed. Becker Florist is a family-owned floral and greenhouse stationed in Fort Dodge since the year 1885. Bill got sick in December, but fought through it. Jeff noticed he would always bounce back from any health scares. On Valentine's Day, though, Bill suffered a heart attack. He had surgery and pulled through as doctors commented his heart was fine despite the widowmaker level of his attack. Bill's heart valve was narrowed, though. When the doctors did their analysis, they thought the surgery would be too risky moving forward, so they focused on making him comfortable. He was just struggling to get through it all, so we brought him back with, to Friendship Haven, Jeff said. He stayed there until he passed peacefully. Bill was a fixture at Becker Florist, working there since he could pick up a broom at 11 or 12 years old over eight full decades ago. He got back from the Navy in 1948 when he was 21 years old, Jeff said. His dad passed away when he was 12, so he helped around the house and took some classes at Fort Dodge Junior College. That's when my dad and Ed took over the business. My dad did the farming, and Ed did a lot on the floral side. Jeff recalls Bill's younger years almost seeming like a novel. Saturday morning, he would do his chores with his grandma and split wood, Jeff said. In the afternoon, he would go to play down by the river, just like Tom Sawyer. He would go fishing on Duck Island and have a fun time. Bill handed out words of wisdom and planting instructions for trees and gardens during his 55-year full-time stint at Becker Florist and Garden Center. He retired in the year 2001 at age 72. 
Bill kept busy even after his professional days had ended. He continued his work with the local garden club while also tending a garden of his own. He loved the garden club, Jeff said. He helped with the orchard that was next to his house where they put in 50 apple trees. He would mow the orchard and guide the club to prune the trees in the spring, then pick the apples. He would go out to the farmer's market and see the customers selling apples and sweet corn. He always enjoyed seeing everyone. Bill had his own secrets for healthy living. He always said, if you keep on moving, you will keep on living, Jeff said. He had a grandpa that lived into his early 90s, so it was part partly genetics. In the summertime, he was always in his garden, getting his zucchini squash ready. Jeff, part of the fourth generation of Beckers to operate the family business with cousins Brian and Bruce and sister Linda, took the same professional path as his father. After Jeff graduated from Kirkwood Community College in 1978, he was right back by his father's side. I learned customer service from him, Jeff said. Not only the greenhouse trade, but more than anything, he taught me how to handle customers the right way. He said, never get worked up or overreact. Just take care of the customer. As loyal as Bill was to his customers, his employees were just as important to him. He was always nice to our employees and treated them with respect, Jeff said. He would be a part of the company picnics at Twin Lakes and spend time with them. He really enjoyed that. We had some wonderful employees. He would ask a school kid riding his bike if they wanted to come do some watering, and four hours later, they would have a job. He just tried to treat all people nicely. As time continued and grandkids turned into great-grandkids, Bill prioritized family more than ever. When the grandkids and great-grandkids came, he loved hiking with them and being a part of nature, Jeff said. He would take them on hikes, go fishing, and tell them about the importance of trees and nature. Bill had four children with his late wife, Dorothy, Stephen, Linda, Jeff, and Lori. The family had seven grandchildren and ten great-grandchildren. All four of his children worked at the store. Jeff and Linda were still there when the business was sold to Johnson Brothers in late January. Lori, who also worked for 25-plus years with her father, remembers the time they had together fondly. I don't think I ever had a disagreement with him, Lori said. He taught us the importance of a good work ethic and taught us to treat everyone the way you wanted to be treated. He was a great person to look up to. Lori was amazed by how much her father was still doing well into his 90s. He lived in his house for his entire life, but all for all but two weeks. That was such a huge blessing, Lori said. I think him staying active was the key to such a long and healthy life. Being outside with nature and being able to share that passion brought the family closer together. Not a lot of people like to do the same thing at work and outside of work like he did, Lori said. He loved being outside. I remember him saying in the hospital that he planted over 10,000 trees in his life. Those, these last couple of weeks were tough, but we heard some stories from him that we hadn't heard before. That was a blessing. Whether it was with his family, customers, or friends, Bill's always made a lasting impression on people. When anyone came into the store, they wanted to talk to Bill, Jeff said. He would gladly take the time to talk to help them out, and he always had a smile on his face. Continuing with today's obituaries, we have Leonard Ferry. Graveside service with military honors, 1 p.m. on Friday, March 1st, at Indian Mound Cemetery in Humboldt www.masonlindhart.com is where you can find more information regarding Leonard Hart Ferry.
excuse me. Next, we remember Heath Almond, age 49, although he claimed to always be 27, of Fort Dodge, died under hospice care and surrounded by family on February 21st, 2024 at his home. Visitation will be held from 9.30 a.m. Sunday, March 3rd, with a service to follow at 11.30 a.m. Sunday at Gunderson Funeral Chapel. A celebration of life will continue at 1 p.m. Sunday, March 3rd at the Oprah House. Heath Richard Almond, son of Richard and Mary Almond, was born on August 28, 1974 in Pocahontas, Iowa. As a young child, the family moved to Fort Dodge and he graduated from Fort Dodge Senior High in 1993. Heath met the love of his life, Mauricia Nicholas, at Jim's service station and the couple married on April 21, 1995. He owned and operated H&M Shop, which is located on their home property. Heath will forever be remembered by his wit and silly humor, many antics he learned from his uncles. He could fix everything from cars to heavy equipment and anything in between and was known to make fun of Prius drivers and Ford owners. Even though he wasn't a farmer, he loved farm all tractors. He enjoyed his four-legged companions, Axel, Diesel, and the crackhead dog, Jackson, Building his new shop together with his family was time together he greatly cherished. Next we remember Richard Dick Johnson of Great Falls, also known as Uncle Dick, age 95, formerly from Fort Dodge, passed away in Great Falls, Montana on Wednesday, February the 21st. Lofsweiler Funeral Home is serving the family. You can uh, visit www.lofsweilerfuneralhome.com for more information. Next, we remember Marianne Savage excuse me, from Lake City. The funeral service will be at 3.30 p.m. Sunday, the March the 3rd, at the Lampy and Powers Funeral Home in Lake City with a visitation from 2 to 3.30 p.m. at the funeral home, powersfh.net, for more information. Now we remember Elizabeth Lund, age 90, of Badger, who died February 27th at the Paula J. Baber Hospice Home. Visitation will be held from 5 to 7 p.m. Friday at Gunderson Funeral Home and Cremation Services. A funeral will be held at 2 p.m. Saturday, March 2nd at Badger Lutheran Church. A private interment will be held at a later date in the Newark Township Cemetery. Elizabeth Ann Pergandy was born on February 11, 1934, in Laverne, Iowa. She graduated from high school and college. She taught school in West Bend from 1954 to 1956. On May 27, 1956, Liz married Gordon Lund, and the couple made their home on a farm near Vincent. She was a member of Badger Lutheran Church and was an active volunteer for Sunday School and Sewing Circle, a member of the Badger 39ers, volunteered at Operation Christmas, and she enjoyed sewing, gardening, and her grandkids. In lieu of flowers, memorials may be left to the charitable discretion of the family. And we remember Dennis Brandenburg. Dennis Brandy L. Brandenburg, age 78, formerly of Clare, passed away Monday, February 19th at Sunny Knoll Care Center in Rockwell City. A celebration of life will be held at a later date. Visit www.lofsweilerfuneralhome.com for a full obituary. 
Now we'll turn to the sports page and in girls' state basketball. Beat goes on for indomitable Mustangs. Kira Youngers is making sure to take in each and every moment this week at the state tournament. That's because this marks the final time she will play for her dad, legendary Newell Fonda head coach Dick Youngers. The second-ranked Mustangs made sure Wednesday would not be the finale for the duo, rolling past Calamus Wheatland in a and into the Class 1A semifinals, 63-8 to 30. Also in the girls' state tournament, Garrigan bows out in 1A quarterfinals. In the end, the shots simply didn't fall for Bishop Garrigan. For the fifth straight season, the Golden Bears were playing in the girls' state basketball tournament. It was the first time, though, without two of the school's all-time best. Garrigan, the number 5 seed, fell to fourth-seeded Council Bluff St. Albert in a Class 1A quarterfinal on Wednesday, 53-42. to Next is an article, Supersoft Ross is 3A's best. Three Dodgers have combined to win Gable Mr. Wrestler Award five times since 2017. Drashawn Ross proved he was among the best wrestler in the entire state of Iowa this season, and on Wednesday, Fort Dodge's sophomore standout was honored at the highest level for his achievements. Ross was named the 3A Dan Gable Mr. Wrestler of the Year during a ceremony hosted by Iowa Wrestling Coaches of Officials Association, presented by Fairway Stores Incorporated, IA Wrestle, and Iowa Corn. Winning this award means I'm surrounded by a lot of people that are good for me and always want what's best for me in the long run, Ross said. This award, which was first handed out in 2011, come back to Fort Dodge for the fifth time in the last eight seasons. A Dodger has been nominated eight times in the 14-year history of the award. There have been some great wrestlers come through Fort Dodge, so it's an honor to be a part of this history, Ross said. The outcome of the season is just the product and result of what my training partners and I have been doing all season. Claiming another state title and the other wins are just examples of what we have been working for, toward and training for. Former Dodgers state champs Brody Teske, 2017 and 2018, and Drake Ayala, 2020 and 2021, were recognized after both their junior and senior years. They were also finalists as sophomores. When you look at our program, it says a lot about our community and the support from our parents and on down, Thompson said. The kids are great. They're wrestle hard and they're homegrown. Relative to Class 3A, we are a small program. We have 27 kids total in our room, and we finished third in state duels and traditional. It's a tribute to our community and kids. Ross was the second FDSH wrestler in the family to be nominated for this award. His sister, Alexis Ross, was a 2022 girls' state champion and 3A finalist that year on the girls' side. Drayshawn was obviously the most dominant wrestler in the state of Iowa, as just a sophomore, said Thompson. Winning the award over some strong seniors shows the respect he had from the entire state. Drayshawn is just so relaxed in the way he approaches his matches and competition. I have seen him grow so much from his freshman to sophomore year. Ross is also being heavily pursued on the football field. The first-team All-Stater has Division I offers from Iowa, Iowa State, Nebraska, Missouri, Purdue, Minnesota, Kansas, and Kansas State. Collegiate wrestling programs are not allowed to make formal offers until September 1st later this year. In some sports briefs, ace for Scophammer, 
Tom Skophammer had a hole-in-one on opening day at Lakeside Golf Course Monday. Skophammer aced the 102-yard ninth hole with a nine-iron. The shot was witnessed by Tom DuBois, Scott Van Gundy, Terry Flattery, Nick Drzymski, and Scott Stiles. AFES Spring Basketball Tryouts AFES in Fort Dodge will hold its spring basketball tryouts on March 3rd at the MLK Recreation Center. Grades 4 through 6 are asked to report to 712 3rd Street Northwest in Fort Dodge from noon to 1.30 p.m. Grades 7 through 9 are from 2 to 3.30 p.m. Grades 10 to 11 are 4.30 to 6.30 p.m. Cost is $5 to try out. The spring season is... $225 per player with financial assistance available. For more information, please call or text area code 515-408-2633 or visit www.afes4kids.org. And AFES March Basketball Camps. The AFES March Skills and Drills Basketball Camp will run March 4th through 29th at the MLK Recreation Center. Boys from grades 3 through 12 will run Monday on Mondays, Tuesdays, and Thursdays at 712 3rd Street Northwest in Fort Dodge. During that period of time, cost is $125 per player. Girls in grades 3 through 12 report on Wednesdays and Saturdays. Cost is $75 per player. For more information, please call or text area code 515-408-2633 or visit www.afes4kids.org. That brings us to today, the end of today's reading of the Fort Dodge Messenger in the Mason City Globe Gazette. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with Iris, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind. <laughs>